Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Uh, today we are continuing through our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus, where we explore some of the major and minor stories and writings of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And as we read through the Bible, we begin to discover this amazing and radical love of Jesus, a love that spans centuries, that spans cultures, that spans traditions, a love that overwrites our own expectations and brings us into his mercy and his grace. And today we are going through the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Now Isaiah was a prophet that prophesied somewhere between 720 and 700 BCE or BC, and his book actually extends further. Some of his writings or some of the writings of the book of Isaiah were compiled later by followers of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, They extended into the Babylonian exile about 120 to 150 years after the time and the death of Isaiah. And so today we are going to be looking at a couple of different places in Isaiah. We have quite a few verses. Unfortunately, I've overwhelmed our tech team. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, But we have quite a few verses today to look through. And we're going to be comparing Isaiah to some verses in the New Testament. And we're going to kind of compare some of the prophecies of the Messiah, of the suffering servant that Isaiah identifies with the life in the time of Jesus. But before we get to the comparisons, we're going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48, verses 1 through five says this, or starting in verse one, Isaiah 48 should be available for you on the screen there. It says, listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and who come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth and righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. And God is speaking, saying, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron, your forehead was bronze. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say, my images have brought them about, my wooden image and metal God ordained them. See, God calls on his people and he speaks to them about what he's prophesied to them in the past. So here's our first lesson. We only have two lessons today, but here's our first lesson. Our first lesson is this. We can trust God's word. You see, God gives his reasoning for revealing the future to his people. God isn't just showing off that he knows these things, but rather he's revealing to them the future for a very specific reason. And the prophecies that God is referring to here in Isaiah 48 refers to the events that were prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of Judah, and the exile into Babylon. Isaiah, in in, in his time, he warned the people of Judah of all that would happen if they didn't repent, if they didn't turn from their ways, if they didn't turn to God. And, And at the time of the writing of Isaiah 48... These events, the destruction of Jerusalem and of Judah and the exile, would have already taken place. Isaiah 48 takes place in the time period when the people are already in Babylonian captivity. 
They've already experienced the fulfillment of these prophecies. And later on in the chapter 48, we won't get to that today, God gives them insight into even more future events. He tells them of the conquest of Babylon by the hands of Cyrus, king of Persia. And God here in chapter 48, the first five verses, he tells the people why he has revealed these hidden things about the future. He says it was so that the people could trust him. It's so that the people could trust his word and his promises. You see, the people at the time, they were chasing foreign gods. They were looking for hope and salvation and all the other gods of the Babylonians. They were looking for hope in Marduk. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, was giving them reason to put their faith, not in the other gods made of wood and of stone and of metal, but rather in the one true living God. And so God says, it's not these foreign gods that have told you of things to come. It's not these foreign gods that warned you of the destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. It says, only I have done that, said Yahweh. Only I have told you these things of long ago. Only I have the power to deliver you. See, within the time span of the book of Isaiah, the very prophetic words of the prophet Isaiah came to fulfillment. God begins this chapter by reminding them of the things spoken by Isaiah, by reminding them that these things had already come to pass. And so, based on this track record, they could put their confidence in the prophetic word that this other king, this kingdom from the east, this Cyrus would come and conquer Babylon. They could put their trust in the promise that this Persian king would make a way for Judah's, ex Judah's exiles to return home and rebuild the temple. That's the hope that they were clinging on to. And God says, you can trust me. I am telling you it will come to pass. But even more so, because their hope wasn't just in the restoration of, of Judah and Jerusalem. The hope was in something so much greater. They had this hope of a Messiah, of someone to come who would set all things right in the world. And so God is not only saying, not only have the prophecies of Babylon come true, God says the prophecies of Persia will come true, but he says, trust me, the prophecies of the Messiah will also come true. This Messiah would come to establish a heavenly kingdom to set all things right in the world. And these promises were equally trustworthy. We can trust God's word. You see, the prophecies of Cyrus, they came true. We can read about it in our history books. And the prophecies of Daniel, a book we'll get to much later in the year regarding the nation of Persia, has also come true. You see, God's record in doing what he has said will happen, or God's record in these prophecies is impeccable. It always comes true. Every promise that God has spoken has come into fulfillment. And so when we hear the promises, the promises that haven't yet come true, the promises that we're still waiting on, the promises we put our hope in, when we hear those promises, we can trust in knowing they will come true because God has not and will not fail. We can trust God's promises. You know, as we approach this Christmas season, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the arrival of this long-awaited Messiah. And part of the reason why Christmas is so meaningful is because, what, because of what the birth of Jesus actually means. 
The birth of Jesus was a birth unto death. By that we mean that Jesus came to this earth with the full intention that his life would be a sacrifice for us. See, Christmas is an extension. It is partnered with the celebration of Easter. We celebrate not only the birth of Jesus, but we celebrate the birth of hope. We celebrate the birth of forgiveness the birth of the resurrection in Jesus. And so we're going to read, we're going to take some time today to read a few different passages in Isaiah. We want to see them fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Because God said in Isaiah 48, he says, the things I have said have come true. So believe the things that I'm going to say. And I want us to read through some of the prophecies of Isaiah to see them have come true in the life of Jesus and to believe the promises that Jesus has for us. So in the book of Isaiah, we see this theme a motif. It plays out throughout some of the chapters and the passages. And the book of Isaiah points us to what we have called the suffering servant. This suffering servant was a servant of God who would suffer for the sins of the people. And through this servant's suffering, Israel and all of God's people would be forgiven and redeemed. That was the hope they clinged to. So we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 and 7 says this, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint and I will know I will not be put to shame. Isaiah 50 verses six and seven is the the suffering servant himself speaking. Now we jump forward to Matthew chapter 20 verses 17 and 19. Says this, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem Matthew records. On the way, he took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, we are going up to to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised to life. Matthew 26, verse 67 and 68 says this, then they spit in his face and they struck him with fists and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Luke 22 verses 63 to 65 says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and they they demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. So Isaiah 50 tells us this, that the Messiah would offer his back to those that beat him and his cheeks to those that pulled out his beard, that this suffering servant would be mocked and spit on. And Matthew and Luke, they find these things fulfilled. Matthew 20, Jesus predicts his own crucifixion and his flogging. He says, I will be given over to the Gentiles. But like Isaiah 50 says, but he will not be put to shame. Jesus says, but the son of man will rise again on the third day. Jesus offered his back the Roman whips. Matthew 26, the Pharisees, it says they spit in his face and they struck him with fists. And Luke 22, commenting on the same event, Luke writes that the people blindfolded him. They'd hit him and they would mockingly ask him to prophesy and identify the one hitting him. And it says they continued mocking him with insults. And all the, although these, these, these passages don't really mention the pulling of the beard, there's actually an implication that it actually happened. 
See, for the Jews, the shaving or the plucking of the beard was an incredible insult to one's honor. And the whole process of the crucifixion, something that the Pharisees had planned for Jesus, was not just physically torturous, it was meant to be a humiliating and shameful experience. See, a lot of the times we see, if we've ever seen depictions of Jesus on the cross, we see Jesus kind of stripped down with his loincloth, but that's not the case. The Romans, they wanted to shame people when they crucified them. They would have crucified them completely beaten, completely naked, marred and disfigured. And the Jews in their punishment would have either shaved or plucked, even ripped Jesus' beard out of his face as another method to further pile on the shame of the crucifixion. So here we see in these passages, Isaiah 50 coming to life. Isaiah 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 3, says this, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shout, shut their mouths because of him for what, for what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. 53 verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, he, uh, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem." John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, Philip found Nathanael and he told him, he says, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. We have found the one that the prophets also wrote about, this Messiah, that's who they're talking about. He says, we have found him, he is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael responds, Nazareth? Can anything good even come from Nazareth? Luke chapter 2, verses 4 to 7 So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Matthew 8 18 to 20 says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then the teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. See, Isaiah says that the suffering servant would be marred and disfigured, and we see that through the whole torturous event of the cross, the beatings that happened with Jesus. He says that the Messiah would rise up like a tender shoot. This is a specific reference to an earlier passage, Isaiah 11, this tender shoot that comes from the line of David, that would be the Messiah. The Messiah would be familiar with pain, despised and rejected, be held in low esteem. He would have no majesty about him to attract others to him. And John 1 shows us, Nathanael exclaims his distaste after hearing the suspected Messiah was coming from Nazareth. He says, is there anything good in Nazareth? Nazareth is a lowly, disgusting, despised district of Judah. Nothing good comes from there. 
Luke 2 says that he was born not in a palace, but in a lowly manger. Jesus was born in a place with farm animals because the inn had no room for the earth's savior. Luke 2 shows us he's also the tender shoot, a baby wrapped in cloths, a vulnerable infant born to Mary and Joseph of the line of David. Matthew 8 shows us that his ministry wasn't marked by greatness and majesty that we might expect from some king, from the king of the universe, but rather that Jesus was a homeless teacher with no riches, possessions, or political or military power. Isaiah 49 verses 15 and 16 says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breasts and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Though she may forget, God says, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way. And the Lord has laid on the suffering servant on him the iniquity of us all. Now John 20, 24 to 27 says this, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. See, Isaiah shows us that the suffering servant would be wounded for our sins. The Redeemer, this Messiah, would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and through his wounds, we would be healed. And God lovingly declares to his people that he would never forget us, that our names would be engraved in the very palms of his hands. In John 20, we see see Jesus here appear before Thomas, who was doubting the resurrection, and Jesus appears to show him the nails that marked his hands, the wound where the soldiers pierced his side. And he said, come, feel, know that it is true. These wounds that Jesus bore bring healing, bring restoration, bring forgiveness, just like Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet the suffering servant did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Matthew 26, verses 59 to 63 says, The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any through many false witnesses that came forward, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, 
I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. See, in Isaiah, we see that the suffering servant, this Messiah, would willingly and silently be given up unto death as a sacrifice for us. And Matthew shows us that Jesus remained silent before his accusers, before the ones that beat him. He did not even open his mouth to counteract the false testimonies, the lies that they had brought against him. He did not defend himself in any way. He did not attempt to argue his way out of what he knew what was coming. And later we'll see that he only speaks when the Pharisees ask him directly, when they declare an oath by the living God. And they say, are you the Messiah? And Jesus testifies, I am the one that generations have hoped for. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he, the suffering servant, was punished. Mark 15, 6 to 15 says this, Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising and the rebellion against Rome. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did to release this prisoner. And Pilate asked, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed over Jesus to him. He knew he was innocent. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Isaiah 53, 8 shows us that the Messiah would be oppressed and judged, but that no one would come to his defense. He would be killed and punished for the sake of his people. And Mark 15 shows us that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but he gave an opportunity for Jesus to be released. He offered the people, he says, do you want Barabbas, this violent, murderous troublemaker, or do you want Jesus, a healer, a provider, a loving teacher? And the crowd led by the Pharisees chose Barabbas. And they demanded that Jesus be crucified. None of his generation defended the innocent teacher. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, The suffering servant, the Messiah, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and was sentenced to death with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Matthew 27 verses 38, 39, and 44 says, Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left, those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Matthew 27, 57 to 60 says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and, and Pilate ordered it that, it be, that it be given to him. Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of a single rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. 
Mark 15, 42 to 46 say, it's the same story here. It says it was a preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. So summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. See, Isaiah 53, 9 says that the Messiah would be innocent, but he would be assigned to death with the wicked and assigned into death with the rich. And so Matthew 27 shows us that he was sentenced alongside two rebels, two criminals. And it's entirely possible that these two rebels were leaders of the insurrection with Barabbas. That day, there was supposed to be three crucifixions. That cross was never prepared for Jesus of Nazareth. That was not Pilate's intention. It was initially prepared for Barabbas. But the crowd freed the criminal and sentenced Jesus to death instead. Matthew 27 and Mark 15, these passages show us that after Jesus had died, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a rich member of the council, asked Pilate for Jesus' body. He took the tomb, uh, he took the tomb that he had carved out of stone for himself, and he prepared instead a burial place for Jesus. He gave Jesus all the burial rites and the dignity of a king. Isaiah 53 verses 10 to 12 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer, speaking of the Messiah. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he, the Messiah, bore the sin of many and made intercession for the sinners, for the transgressors. This passage shows us that Jesus took on our sins. The Messiah would take on our sins, and we see that in Jesus. He takes on our sins. Jesus received the beatings, the lashings, the piercings on his hand and his feet. He died on the cross to defeat the powers of sin and death. He died on the cross to give us forgiveness freely, to justify us, to declare us not guilty. And even though Jesus was not a criminal, he was crucified like he was one. Even though Jesus committed no sins, he took on the sins of all of humanity. Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11, one of my favorite passages in our last verse for today, says this, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, speaking of Jesus, by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place, and gave him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the descriptions of the suffering servant 
say that he would be one who takes on the sins of God's people, would bring redemption, and those things are perfectly fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. And so Jesus is the name that is above all other names because it is by his name alone that we are saved. So here's our final and closing lesson. Final lesson is this. Jesus is our hope. See, every expectation for hope and redemption and restoration is fulfilled in Jesus. Every dream of God's kingdom reigning here on earth is made a reality by the work of Jesus on the cross. I want to invite the band to come on up as we begin to close here. See, all of Israel, they placed their hopes in this Messiah that was to come. The, the people of Israel, they waited for centuries for the hope outlined not only in the prophecies of the book of Isaiah, but also in the writings of the other prophets. All of those hopes and expectations materialized that fateful day in an infant boy, born in a manger. See, all of our hope is found in that child. All of our hope is found in the baby born to Joseph and Mary, born in a small farm place, in a small manger, without glory and majesty, not surrounded by soldiers and palaces and riches, but wrapped in a cloth, surrounded by shepherds. All of our hope is found in this Judean rabbi named Jesus. And God gave his people signs and prophecies of what was to come so that they could have confidence in his word. And so we too, we can trust God's word. All the things that he had outlined through the prophets for both Israel and Judah, they came to be exactly as he had warned them and told them that it would be. And the deliverance that occurred, the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple came to fulfillment as well right on schedule as God had promised it. See, the promises of God, the promise of hope and redemption for Judah, they were fulfilled. And they were fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. They were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. So if what God had said long ago had already come true, we can trust that the promises we are still waiting on will also come true. When Jesus promised to set things right, that will come true. When Jesus promised to come back for us, that will come true. When Jesus promised that he is preparing a place for us where that he goes, we might also be, that will come true. See, the history, listen to this, the history of God's faithfulness in the past gives us hope and assurance for God's faithfulness in the future. What God said has come to pass. The history of God's faithfulness in the past gives us hope and assurance of God's faithfulness in the future. So as we approach this holiday season, as we approach the coming weeks leading up to Christmas, let us remember what we truly celebrate. We celebrate the advent of hope. We celebrate the birth of our Savior. We celebrate the beginning of salvation for all of humanity. We celebrate the hope 
of Jesus. Amen.